A week ago, our Christmas message was found in Luke chapter 2, and we heard, read from God's word, as it says, Fear not, for behold, I bring good news of great joy that will be for all people. We will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And we were in awe of this baby coming into the world, the Son of God. But do we really honestly understand what happened when he entered this world as a human being and understand the joy that took place? Now fast forward maybe a few decades to when Paul would write to his friends in Philippi about the joy that he had in his heart. And we see that the feeling that he had was the same, this great joy that came about. And he wanted to talk to his friends about this God, this Jesus that was true man and true God. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, and we'll be using verses 5 through 11 as our text. But before we get there, I want to read some of what Paul has written before that. If you're using a pew Bible, you will find it on page 980. In verse 3 of chapter 1, he would say, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, and making my prayer with joy. Farther on, he said, I know that I will remain and continue with you for your progress in joy and faith. And in chapter 2, verse 2, he said, Complete my joy by being of the same mind. What is that same mind? In verse 5, he answers that question. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's asking his fellow believers, the ones that he has held so dear, to have the same mind as Jesus himself. And what is that? In Jesus' humanness, it's humility. Humility to the point of allowing humiliation to come on him personally. Paul said by what he has written here that this can happen to each and every individual. Happen to yourselves. But I think it goes farther than that. We can't leave it as just as individuals, but we have to understand it was given as a directive to the church, to this group of believers coming together. Yes, we have to be humble as individuals, but it's for the betterment and for the grace of God that we serve together in humility. And his church will be lifted up because of it. And the other thing that we have to see is when he talks about the mind of Christ, yes, we want to take on the humility that he had, but we have to understand that the only way that that can happen is through the strength of God himself allowing us to be humble. Now we want to see that Paul gives an example of what that humility looks like, and he uses the life of Christ himself. I read in verse 6, Verse 8, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but made him himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What Paul is going to unfold is the self-humbling of Jesus Christ. The self-humbling of Jesus Christ. And where did he start? He started at the point before that happened as him being God himself and tells us that he was actually the God that was there at creation, that spoke everything into existence, that made man and woman to walk in the Garden of Eden, that this man and this woman rebelled against his authority, the God that had said, you can have everything, but do not eat of that tree. But they didn't listen. It's that God that is willing to step aside to save man. It's that God that we see through the Old Testament would reveal himself again and again to his chosen. The glory of God that Moses beheld and said, God, I, I can't be your servant. I, I can't do it. Could, could you reassure me by, by showing me your glory? And he said, I can't do that. You cannot grasp my glory as a human, but I will show you just a portion of it. And he did. This is the God, this is the glory that Jesus said that he was willing to leave. And he did it willingly. He did not try and grasp a hold of hold of it and say, I'm entitled to it. God, I will step aside willingly and obey your will. To realize how low he was willing to humble himself, we have now seen where he came from. John MacArthur wrote, in light of the profound reality of Jesus' full and uncompromised deity, his incarnation was the most profound possible humiliation. But God's word also says that he was to humble himself and that he was willing to make himself nothing. How can this happen? In this downward step that Christ was willing to take, we see that it came about in five ways. The Son of God was the most willing and for some time set aside his divinity in five ways. First of all, he set aside his glory. What was to be given to him at all times as God, he says, I do not need. His authority. Jesus said, I will be in submission to my Father. All that there is has bowed before me, but now I will come to this world and will take on flesh and will be obedient to whatever my Father says. The exercising of some of his divine attributes, he said that he would no longer do. They were hidden from man himself. He did not become less God. 
he chose not to reveal himself in his complete glory and abilities. Yes, he performed miracles. Yes, there was a glimpse of who he truly was. But nothing compared to what Moses said that he thought that he could take in when only a glimpse turned him to show the glory of him on his face. He set aside his eternal riches. Now some would think that what this meant was that he was willing to take on the poverty that would come with being in this world. I I think more than that, it's what he left behind in heaven. He had everything. He was the ruler of all. Angels attended to him. Saints bowed and worshipped and praised him. But no, that would happen no more. And finally, maybe one of the things that we think about and see later on in his life that was the worst is he stopped his relationship with his father. His father would scorn him and turn away from him because the sin of the world was upon him. Paul goes on to say in this step down that he would become a servant. A servant, we realize, is one that takes on the tasks of somebody else. They own nothing. Nothing of their own is ever of value to them because they don't have it. They are there to serve somebody else. This is what Jesus did to the point where things of this earth were not important to him, that he rode into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey, He was buried in a borrowed grave. And he was willing to carry the burdens of other people. The one burden no one else could carry, the sin burden of all of us who believe on him, was put on him. As Isaiah would say in his word, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Now, the next two things that we see may sound the same uh, at first look because we're going to see that there was a humanness, a humility to the point of humiliation that came about because we see in verses 7 and 8, he was born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. They sound very similar. But really, there is a difference here. I I actually like better what it says in the American Standard Version because it calls it the likeness of men. But the second part, it calls it the, uh, the appearance as a man. Likeness of men. He came into this world having everything that any human being would have. Not only physically, but emotionally. He truly would know sorrow. He truly would rejoice. He truly would be scorned. He would have anger. But the second part of it says that he would appear as a man. I happen to think of the days when my wife and I would go to the movie 
and uh, sometimes it was to the point that we would go because it was just going to be for the popcorn. <laughs> and that even got to the point that on times we didn't even want to see the movie. We just bought the popcorn, would sit in uh, the aisle and do what we called people watch. There are supposedly no two people alike. I believe that. And they come in every shape and size. There is enough humanity in this building right today. If you look around, we understand that that's true. I don't know what likeness Jesus had. I don't know how tall he was, how wide his shoulders were, what color his hair was, even what color his hair might have been, his eyes. None of that. It isn't important. But I know that he was in the likeness of man. Because God's word tells us that. And it tells us in, in a way that at first glance we, we might miss. But if you look in Mark 6, when Jesus came to Nazareth, to among his own people that he had grown up with, it says that people looked at him. He had been in the, t- in the, in the synagogue teaching, and they were amazed at the things that he was saying, and they looked at him, and it tells us exactly what they saw in him. They said, is this not the carpenter? They could understand that this person that had been around them for 30-some years, that was with his mother, his brothers and sisters at this very point, was the one that had worked with his father to learn the trade of a carpenter. The one that had the ability to take a piece of wood and maybe form it in to what held two ox together, that yoke to do their work. Or maybe he built carts. Or maybe he worked on whatever their houses looked like at that time. But they knew exactly what that carpenter was. He was that man. And I have to tell you, as an amateur carpenter that has probably taken on jobs that are past my skill level, I'm going to end up with a hurt thumb, some skinned knuckles, or something is going to happen, and I'm going to bleed. And if that happened to Jesus, that likeness of man, he bled also. The difference between him and I or us, when that happens, how quickly do we have to catch ourselves before we maybe embarrass ourselves what our thoughts or words might be because of what has happened? For Christ himself, being God, it never changed. Yes, he was in the likeness of man. He humbled himself. We have to understand that probably one of the best examples of how he humbled himself was in when he was with his disciples at their last meal together and he would wash their feet. What an act that the servant would do. 
And Peter would say, you'll never do that to me. He said, Peter, I am going to wash your feet because I'm doing this to show you as an example of what a servant will do. The greatest can be no lesser than the servant. Now, the last half of verse 8. Become obedient to the point of death and even death on a cross. Paul would write in Romans, Through the, obedi- through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Ralph Martin would write in his commentary on Philippians, His obedience is a sure token of his deity and authority, for only a divine being can accept death as obedience. For ordinary men, it is a necessity. He alone, as the obedient son of his father, could choose choose death as his destiny. And he did so, because of his love, a love which was directed both at his father's redeeming purpose and equally to the world into which he came. I will come to do thy will. This is the essence of what Christ was to do as Lord and Savior. Death alone has no redeeming value. But when it was taken on by Christ himself, the sinless lamb, the one that had led a perfect life and was willing to die in our place, it would redeem us from what was due us and would fulfill his father's purpose. But what kind of death? A death by crucifixion. Perhaps the most cruel, excruciating, and painful and shameful form of execution that the world has ever known. We in this country say we will not use a punishment that is cruel and unusual. This is the essence of exactly what Rome was looking for. Cruel and unusual punishment. They did not invent crucifixion, but they used it. But do you realize that they would never crucify a Roman citizen? It was only saved for those that were doing something that bad that were not of their own. Jews realizing what crucifixion was and knowing that for them, Anything that was hung or on a tree was to be cursed of God. This is the payment. This is what he did for us. Paul, in unpacking this whole section, has showed us the humility that Christ would would be an example of in his life. But Paul doesn't leave us there. He goes on and he says, Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Some commentaries, some Bibles have got this set like this was a hymn or a poem at one time. Do those words that I just read sound familiar from being from a song? What Paul is telling us is that now we have to understand and see the exaltation of Christ, how God would exalt him. The short answer is to what is the source of Christ's exaltation? God himself. God the Father would be the one that would lift Son up, that would restore him. And he would do it in four unique ways. He would resurrect him from the dead. And by doing that, death itself had no victory. But when he won victory over the grave by God raising him and saying and continually saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It showed all that would see that he had accomplished and conquered death like he said he would. Peter would be a witness to that and use it over and over when he would relate what Christ has done. Also, we see how he has been exalted in the ascension of God himself. As Christ was being ascended into heaven, disciples were in view of it. Paul would later write to his fellow pastor, Timothy, Jesus was taken up in glory. Not only was he removed from this world, his work here done, but he was restored back to the position that he came from at the right hand of God himself. Third, his coronation. Right before this ascension happened at the Great Commission, Jesus proclaimed to all that would listen to him and were in, his, in attendance of it, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given back to me. It is mine. Number four, he was restored as the high priest. He said, sits at God's right hand. God the Father has seen his redeeming work, has found his sacrifice acceptable once for those that will believe and trust in him. He is there at this time, interceding for us because of his glorious work. For the most part, Jesus' exaltation involves the rest, restoration of what he had internally possessed before his incarnation. We also have to understand for his exaltation the title of Christ's exaltation. What name will be given to him? His name was Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. That really is not the name that we will see and understand that every knee will bow before. It's a name that's still used today in different forms, as in Joshua. But the real name doesn't come about until in verse 11 when we see that what that name will be that will bring those 
of this world to their knee is Lord. He is given that name by God the Father himself. It was a title bestowed to him with honor, given by his Father. The Lord is the title of majesty, authority, honor, and sovereignty. Acts 2 verse 36 says, Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. We have to see and understand that, yes, he is Savior of the world for those that will declare him as Lord, as Savior, but he also has to be Lord of our life. If you think about statistics or numbers, do you realize that 747 times in the New Testament, Jesus is called Lord? In the book of Acts, he's called Savior twice. He's called Lord 92 times. People may say that he is the Savior of their life, that he has given them a right standing with God himself. But if they do not make him Lord of their life, we have to question if they truly have surrendered to him as Lord and Savior. It should make a difference in our lives and in our hearts that we allow him to rule over each part of our lives that we are willing to surrender him all to him all that we are. The last part of Christ's exaltation, the response to Christ's exaltation, the response. Mr. MacArthur would write, ultimately, whether by choice or by force, every creature, human and angelic, will submit to Jesus Christ as the divine and exalted Lord. Paul broke it down into three realms, heaven, earth, and under the earth. In heaven, those that are willing to respond to Christ's exaltation are the holy angels and all the saints that have gone on before us. They are in God's presence, praising and worshiping and glorifying him, and will continue to do that for an eternity. Those saints will be added to because those are the ones that will continue to accept him as Lord and Savior and after death or his coming will be in his presence singing praises and worshiping him. Under the earth will be the fallen angels, the unredeemed dead, who are waiting final judgment and eternal punishment. It's too late for them. They have chosen to turn against God, to rebel, and not see that he is Lord and Savior. But what about those that are on the earth? This includes the redeemed, those that have been saved, and the unredeemed. It is happening right here today. Until the day that God chooses to come back and end this world, and his his word says that it will happen, happen in the twinkle of an eye, 
That will continue. There will be those that have already accepted him as Lord and Savior. But there are also those that their hearts might still be hardened against him. And if that has not changed on the day that he chooses to come back, they will be forever cast away from him. It will be too late for them. They will bow. They will realize that he's Lord and Savior, but only in the anguish of the punishment do them. But what we have to understand and realize, and as this, as this scripture ends, Paul has been trying to tell us what we need to be doing. He has said that humility must happen among us so that we can come together, be his people, and willingly serve and obey him. When Jesus left and ascended into heaven, his work of being the Savior, the one that paid the price for us, has ended, but not his work. It was turned over to us, and he said, you will go and tell all nations about me. You will be the one to spread the gospel message among all those that will listen. It's not your decision as to who hears, only to do. And we have to understand that in the middle of that, in all that we know about the Christmas story, from what Paul was saying he delighted in among his fellow believers in Philippi, to, to this day when we share the gospel, to more people come to know and understand who Jesus Christ is, it is always to this one ending, and that is to give glory and honor to God forever and ever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we have seen what your servant Paul has written to us, Lord, magnifying the glory of the one true servant, I pray, Lord, that it again may humble us for what you have done for us, that it may touch our hearts, that we may be willing again in humility to serve you, I pray, Lord, that we continually come back to this, that we look at your message again and again, that when we think those things that you have laid in front of us that are for kingdom work are too much for us to grasp and for us to do, I pray again, Lord, that we might be willing to undertake them knowing that you are the one that will give us the power, but also it is always to give you honor and glory and that because what you have done for us we have a heart full of obedience. And we thank you for it, Lord. We love you and we pray that we continue to be willing to do your work. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.